You are listening to the Joe Rogan Experience Review Podcast. We find little nuggets, treasures, valuable pieces of gold in the Joe Rogan Experience Podcast and pass them on to you, perhaps expand a little bit. We are not associated with Joe Rogan in any way. Think of us as the talking dead to Joe's walking dead. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Joe Rogan Experience Review Podcast. Uh, we got a new website up and running, guys, uh, jrereview.com. Head over there. Check it out. It's a work in progress, but uh, there's Patreon on there. So if you're a fan of the show and you want to be a supporter, please, we would love it. If uh, you went over there, signed up, you can get a cup and some stickers and some other things. 25% of all that money goes to a great cause, which is Fight for the Forgotten charity, which we support at every turn. Uh, This week's guest on Rogan that we will be reviewing is Chris DiStefano. Uh, he's a comedian, American comedian, though he says he's German descent. Um, started his career on MTV and worked into the podcast world and now has a few comedy specials. Very funny guy. He's been making the circuits, um, in the comedy podcast world and he's going to be a big name for sure. Then we have Neil Brennan, almost needs no introduction. Uh, one of the head writers on the Chappelle show. He's an incredible joke writer, an amazing stand-up, a very complex and intelligent person. And in this week of Rogan, he really opens up about a lot of his psychedelic uh, treatments and uh, things he's used to fight depression. And lastly, the man himself, Lex Friedman, who is just becoming such a favorite of mine with his brilliant podcast where he interviews, you know, hard to reach guests like Mark Zuckerberg. Um he sounds pretty stressed out this week. I think the the impact of the war and how close he is with people in Russia and Ukraine has been pretty brutal for him. So uh we hope that that he's doing okay, but um great pod with him anyway. So let's get started. Welcome to the Joe Rogan Universe podcast. What a bizarre thing we've created. Now with your hosts Adam Thorne and Garrett Hess. This might either be the worst podcast or the best one of all time. All right. Well, let's jump into Chris DiStefano with my man Garrett. What's up, guys? Um, what did you think of Chris? Uh, huge fan. He grew on me a lot. He, uh, I was telling you before the pod, I didn't know a whole lot about him. I knew he just put out that new half hour on netflix which is awesome you guys should go mm-hmm. check, go check it out it was amazing but throughout this podcast yeah, what is a special call do you remember uh swashy get swashy uh i'm messing it up but i'll figure it out mm, seems close seems <laughs> close google it I google will. it for that guy I really liked how he opened up being like really quite vulnerable you know i mean not to say he looks like a douchebag that's not fair to say but like he's a big guy and a handsome dude and you could imagine he just comes on and you know does one of those i've got all the answers bullshit but he didn't do anything like that it was really surprising and after seeing his comedy which and him on other podcasts which are really entertaining he's so funny i mean he talks great shit he's hilarious and then for him to come on Rogan and do so much time, just kind of like really kind of pouring his heart and fears out on things. I'm like, that. 
I think it's important to hear that stuff. Dude, it was so refreshing. And just for the record, his special is Speshy Weshy. Go check that out on Netflix. Um, oh, the good old Special Wesh? <laughs> Speshy Wesh. He, he's so self-deprecating. I think they weren't even five minutes in, and he was like, you brought that shirt? Like Joe made reference <laughs> to the shirt that he was wearing, and he was like, I know. He's like, it distracts from my nipples. He's like, they got the kind of puffy nipples, you know? He was pretty funny. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he was brilliant. I loved it. Puffy. Who's talking about their puffy nipples on Rogan? <laughs> well, like, that's was, a first, and we got to give him that. Well, and he also admitted that he was doing. I think he said D ball and a bunch of other like steroids. He he was the Jersey Shore guy, uh, like back in the day. That's what I pictured was like him. Like could have been on cast on the Jersey Shore. But to see him come from yeah. that and to see him like grow, like he, he has his two girls now, and dude, he's the man. Like I. Like I said, he also made reference to a book. I remember I've actually read it twice. I didn't tell you that, but he made reference to that book, The Five Secrets to Know Before You Die by uh, Joe Izzo. Oh, yeah, yeah. He did talk about that. I've never heard of that book. Me neither. I, I sought it out, and me and Alicia just read it. Like I read it in probably a day. I was It was a great book. Nice. I'm on my – it, it uh, recommended another book, The Five Thieves of Happiness. Which Joe's made reference to before as far as I remember Naval's made reference to that too, just desire. Well, give us a breakdown of whatever that book is about. Uh, just write it. Uh, What's going on? Uh, the five things to do. Be, uh, well, he was talking about a variety of people that were on their deathbed from all different walks of life. Mm-hmm. And it was the same narrative that you hear all the time. Nobody's talking about, I wish I would have made more money. I wish I had another BMW. It's like, I wish I would have cultivated these relationships. I wish I would have said, I'm sorry. I wish I would have just been more self-deprecating. I wish I would have just been in the moment. And I think that if we all try and practice those things, it's like, and they always make reference to, even if you know the secrets, you have to implore them. You know what I mean? You have to utilize them for them to come to fruition. So it's, yeah. it's one thing to know the knowledge. It's another thing to implement it in your life and make it a practice. So that's the constant, you know. But uh, You know, but I, I don't, like, those books don't do a lot for me. I'm mean, like, yeah, it's all nice, but what about, like, getting shit done and mastering stuff? I'm with and it. And being, a, like, an expert. It's, it's like slowing down, being in the moment, and okay. Well. Like, yeah, good, too. But, like, I feel like you could be a stoner on a beach and do that shit. True. That's all how you cultivate it. It's all I hit interpret it, but I, I could see it coming from both angles. But I do think that when you – he always talks about just being love, too. Like, he's connected with the idea of love. I know you're cynical to the idea of love, and you don't know how to love, but I'll teach you. <laughs> but it's uh, – I think when you lead with it that – It seems like a harsh judgment there. No, well, I'm I love just, you, Gary. <laughs> I love you too, but that. I'm just saying when you lead with love and you lead with that, I mean, it seems to never fail, to be honest. I, I don't know. I, it just – the more idea that we're all connected to, you know, rather than – It's a nice message. It is. It's a nice Hallmark and card. It goes, it goes with your crystals. Touche. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> what do you think about him talking? Is it worth? Do you think I should check that book out though? Knowing me, like, I'm, am I going to get a lot out of it, or is it going to be a bit? I mean, you've checked out Sleepers, The Count of Monte Cristo, the, a handful of things that I've asked you to check out, which I think have been in their own right good lessons. Maybe not at the right specific time. I will own that, but um, 
I think that there's lessons to be learned in, in a lot of these things, you know? Like, he was. Ta- mm. I liked how he was talking about his mom during the 9-11 thing. He said his mom, like, was in one of the Twin Towers, and he had this, like, coming to God moment where he thought for sure she was gone, and then she was. he, like, came home, and she was there, and he thought he was, like, hugging a ghost. And I was like... He was so just profound with what he said. There was there was definitely no shade to anything he was saying. It was just straight from the heart, you know, which was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the stress that he's picked up from 9-11, and, I mean, obviously, I assume he, he was right in New York, right? Right. So, like, really, that affected at least all of America and a lot of the world. Like, I lived in England at that time, and it was a big deal there. Dude. I mean, that shook the globe in a way. So imagine living right in New York and being that young and potentially having, what, your mother die from this. Right. Um, that's that's going to have a lasting effect. And it was it was cool. It was interesting. And, and fair play to him for kind of hitting that, and being clear about it and not pretending it was something else. Right. I mean, dude, I, I'm not kidding. I got a little afraid of flying for a few years after 9-11. Did you? Do you remember? I just did. Do you remember? I was like, I think we're going to crash all the time. You, That's what I would think. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? <clears throat> yes. I was in a gym in Stroud in England, and we were watching it on the television. I had moved back to... England, so it was 2001, right? In obviously September. Then, um, yeah, so I've been in England about a year from moving back from America. And because it was so surreal, and the and there were like these uh, two people in the gym that worked there watching on the television, and it was almost like when the first tower hit. Like, it, most of us there were just like, is this a movie? That's exactly Like, what is this? A trailer to a movie? Like, no one knew. You know, there was so much confusion. Totally. And then by the time it, like, set in that this was really fucking happening and the second one came, they, I remember these two guys that were working in the gym, and they're not really bad dudes. I know one of them quite well since then. But they, like, started laughing. I don't know what they were talking about, and I flipped out. Wow. I was like, dude, do you have any idea how many people are fucking dying in that building right now? Like, I got mad. Wow. But, you know, it was just crazy. It was just the whole thing was crazy. That was the exact... And watching that happen, like, holy fuck. Right. That was, like, literally the exact situation that I had, except I was watching the TV. I remember my mom called me, and she was like, Garrett, you need to turn on the TV. And as I turned on the TV, I just saw the remnants of the first plane hit. And then it was like, segue, bam, next plane hit. And I was like, oh, my God, that just set in. I really, I remember the feeling that came over to me. I was a freshman in college, sophomore in college, I, yeah, maybe a sophomore in college. And I remember thinking to myself immediately, this is, and he said it too, like immediately I was like, I'm going, I'm joining the Army, and I'm going to fucking kill somebody. I think a lot <laughs> of people thought that way. You know? Like people were rightly upset and, he, and that was the first thought for sure what a weird thing too he was saying that that happened in new york and he's like my buddies went into those stores and like started breaking stuff and being dicks to people that were owners of those stores you know 
it was a weird time and they, they like shifted that whole narrative to feel that way but i mean who knows the real truth at the end of the day i will say if when i get on a plane i'm always like ready you know <laughs> i will say that at least i have that mindset now Dude, I feel like if anyone ever stood up on a plane now and was like, oh, I'm going to take this plane over, they've got like five <laughs> seconds oh, oh before God. 19 guys jump on them. Just waiting for that moment to happen because I know that I'm not the only one thinking that, you know? Yeah, and they try and take you out with a nail file. <laughs> but that was the thing. Before then, you know, people would potentially, right, they would hijack planes, but it was always like they just landed at the airport and then – Give their demands, and then you keep going. I think the narrative before 9-11 was like, look, if that happens, just stay chill. We got people on the ground. Like, nobody was thinking about the potentiality of flying it into a structure in a suicide thing. Right. So, yeah, it's not surprising that most people back then were like, all right, I guess this sucks, but we just wait, see what happens. Ah. And that... He also made that wasn't good. Not good. Segway from that. What do you think about his? Uh, I think he mentioned just a couple moments of like poetic justice, which I thought we should talk about. As far as like the guy on the bus or the subway, when he had his daughter and he was with his dad, and the, the these like three rambunctious like eighteen to twenty year old kids were like screaming on the bus or on the subway, and he was like, "Guys, can you please keep it down." And then his his daughter's. Oh right. yeah, because it was making his kid cry. And she had an ear infection, and he was like, I remember like, the Stefano's dad was like, he looked over at the guy and he had cauliflower ear, and he's like, whatever you do. And this is his badass dad, who's like Italian mafia guy that he describes. His dad's like, don't mess with those guys, no matter what. <laughs> and so he was like, the way he described the story about how his wife like reached over and like started rubbing his back to like kind of calm him down and he was like guys please keep it down he gave him like a second strike and the guy the way Chris described it the guy just like laughed in his face with complete disgust and like no remorse whatsoever and he was like he stood him up and basically just ripped his arm right off of his body and the kid just (laughs) Mm, yep well I mean, there's certain moments like that where everybody gets on board and you're like, all right, he gave you two strikes. And if you if I saw a kid, let alone my kid, if I say a kid crying in that situation, I'm going to have to take a deep breath before I come over and rectify the situation. So I can't imagine what it's like to be his pops in that situation or her pops, you know? Yeah. I don't know. You hear stories like that and you're like, fair play. Good. Yeah. I mean, Sometimes some people need their asses kicked. And we've all been, I mean, not all of us, but a lot of us have been that, like, annoying kid on the train, too. You know, you get too carried away. Trying to you're just your having friend. fun. Right. You think you can get away with some shit. And it's been a while before somebody reminded you that, you know what? You can't always. Right. <laughs> he talked about his dad walking into the principal's office. And after he hit... Oh, well, he punched that kid in the fa- <laughs> punched that kid in the face because he like made fun of his mom or started laughing after the nine eleven thing. And then he described the situation to his dad, and his dad like walked into the principal's office, and it was like, oh, rest in peace, Ray Liotta, too. But uh, <clears throat> uh, 
made me think. Let of, me guess. That was in your notes. Well, made, done, well, it made me think of Casino, but he was like, you know those guys you see that talk about breaking kneecaps? He's like, I am that guy. And he was like about to call somebody on the phone. He just like hangs up the phone. You could like picture the story as he's saying it. And he's like, here's what happened. He's going to be suspended or not suspended, but he's going to go to detention. And he's going to be out the basketball team. It's either that or I break your kneecaps. And he's like, all right, dude. <laughs> well, li- listen, I don't recommend that way Correct. of communicating. Agreed. All right. That story was, was like a little wild. Um, Fair play that, I guess, in a sense, his dad did everything he could, but there's also a way to behave. Like, you shouldn't threaten people. Like, that's basically threatening assault. And in a sense, that's bullying. I mean, that is bullying, right? 100%. You know, we don't know the ins and outs. Maybe the priest is being a dick. Maybe he was, like, you know, showing, like, too much power that he didn't need to possess, and the dad was just, feeling it and doing his best like there's a lot of nuance to it but generally that's not the way to deal with it but hey i guess in the end it when you like i don't i guess you can't say the the you know the effect of what you do leads to a good friendship like you can't know that but it sounds like they became friends after the fact and there was a mutual respect and and so in a sense, it worked out, but it could have been so much worse. Right. Imagine that. I mean, who knows? If the priest had been armed and felt threatened, right. I mean, that shit could have escalated right. in all different directions. Right. I mean, what if we tried to take that approach in a lot of different situations? I think that we would probably be a lot more enlightened if we could just see where other people were coming from. I mean, I know that's a far-fetched way of looking at that moment, but... What do you mean? As far as from the priest goes, he's like, I ha- I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy that has to divvy out the, divvy out the punishment. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge the fact that maybe this was a compromised circumstance where he just thought he found out that his mom died. So, like, given all the details, he was even talking about stuff like that. I think that if you get all the details and you still be a dick, that's on you. But I mean. They were talking about going on rides at Disneyland and stuff like that. I mean, I remember that. Like, it's like you don't have to be a dick about stuff. If you get all the facts, I don't know. That was a segue, but you know what I'm saying. If if, if you get all the if you get all the information, maybe you can make a a better judgment on some situations. True, but oftentimes, I mean, we've had those bosses. Like, you give them all the facts, and they've already made their mind up. Right. You know, they're not listening to you. And they just like, this is how it's going to be, and you got to suffer it, and that's the end of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's more than even that individual discussion. It's like they're setting a tone right. so that other people have the same fear. It's uh, a good point. As to their, you know, authority. And it's just bullshit. I mean, it gets to a point where I, I get, you know, the motive of his dad to do that, you know? He's probably been told so many times that, like, you know, he went to jail. Like, there's probably been plenty of situations where people were just not listening to what he had to say. And he's in there trying to keep his kid in school. And he's like, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes. So that's that's the motive that I'm coming in there with. And yeah. to, Dude, his, to, his, I, to his credit, there's part what, of that you got to respect. You got to respect that. And that's his frame of reference, too. So, I mean, that's what he has to judge. That's what he has to base his decisions on. 
What about his cousin, or I think it was his cousin or his uncle that is transgender, dude? Was that right? And he's had him on the podcast quite, I, quite a few times, I think. And I think he served some time in jail, too. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who was he talking about? Because he like, was in there with, like, the son of Sam. Right, right, right. And some other, like, big-time murderers, I guess. <laughs> right. He was, he I, he had transitioned since he was in there, and he ha, he said he has a great perspective on life. He loves having him in the, his kids' lives. It's it's kind of a cool story. Not the story. Well, it is you know, it is nice in a sense. I mean, look, he knows the person. Right. He knows that's not a threat to his kids, and if he or she has well, she, I guess, has lessons that are useful, right. and Chris trusts it. I mean, yeah, not everyone that goes to jail or gets out is a bad person, right? right? They've done some things wrong, but people make mistakes. Now there's plenty of people that go to jail that maybe you don't want around your kids. But to say that everybody that has can't ever be around them, I mean, no, I don't believe that. Fair. I think that's a fair assumption. I Mm. I wonder what the percentage is on that, though, because if you told me that your brother did 10 years in jail and you're like, you got to meet him. I'd be like, I definitely want to meet him, but you definitely have your hesitations or reservations. Hopefully you wouldn't, but who knows? That said, I feel no, like, I feel like a lot but of it's reasonable. I mean, violent crimes. If somebody has been to jail for violent crimes and done like 10 years. Yeah. Maybe ease into hanging out with them too much. Right. And like I, who knows where they're at or what they're about. Right. I feel like a lot of people that come out of jail, though, have such a different perspective on life that it almost gives them, a, I don't want to say a benefit, but they know, like, human nature to to an nth degree. Well, they know violent human nature, True. for sure. Well, I think they know all facets, but uh, definitely violent. But they also know what people are capable of. But why would, they, why would they know all facets? Just If you took them to, like, a highfalutin, like, super fancy dinner party... Um, well, I think you of like high society, quote unquote. Well, that, you think they'd be able to navigate that well? That's a good question. I think that uh, they would also they they probably be at a disadvantage, but I also think that they would know what people are capable of. So they could probably see through a lot of bullshit too. Like money and highfalutins might not necessarily put on that facade for them. I don't think they would be like, oh, he's rich. I don't know. I guess it's a singular situation, but I don't know that there's a blanket statement that you could say. I think that that situation may give you a tainted view on society or humanity, but it also gives you like a, a good insight to like what people are capable of, fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah, it, again, it's back to violence. It teaches you like the most violent way of surviving. It teaches you like a, a lack of resource type of thinking because you know they they don't have a lot in there right. and they got to they got to keep that shit tight and also people getting one up on them right i mean you know there's a lot of strange psychological manipulation i'm sure that goes on in there right. like be be ready but also you know think of your life in venice it's like as easy as it gets everyone's having a good time we're just all chilling like they they they're not going to be used to that. They're not going to be very trusting of people. They're going to be very suspicious, and quite rightly, because if you went into like a long term prison, being super open and trusting, people are going to take advantage of you so fast you wouldn't even know what you were doing. They take all your shit. 
Yeah, I wonder if that's uh, just something we take for granted not being in prison. Uh, probably, maybe at times. You I mean, I guess it depends who you hang out with. That's what I was gonna say. I don't want to hang out with like <laughs> super hippies, to be honest. Well, I'm just like good for you. No, it's all love, bro. Yeah, I get it. It's good, nice, but also, you know, well, three of your friends I just met are massive dickheads, so maybe don't <laughs> hang out with them. That said, what do you, where do you, where do you lean on human nature? Do you think it's instinctively leans to good or like? Do you think it's more instinctive? Is it like take care of my own, or what, what? What do you think? It's not a question of that. The instinct comes from what you're um, born into, what you're shown. True. Like to say instinct, it's just an adjustment. Yeah. Like what the human being is capable of a massive range of behaviors. True. And if your entire environment, I mean, think about it. So you look at. If you get a very peaceful society, right, and a, and a peaceful area where, like, you know, you go to private school, blah, 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 and you live in Malibu, and either most of your friends are rich or they just have a pretty easy life, and then you got one kid at school that wants to fight everybody, it's not going to work. You're like, this kid's got to go. It's a mess. It doesn't fit in with what's happening here. But then you take that kid out of that life. And then you put him in some village in some depoverished country that's struggling, and he's able to defend himself plus others against bullies and little types of tyranny. Then that guy becomes potentially a leader. And he feels fulfilled. Right? But, feels fulfilled. But, but it's a more appropriate adjustment within your range. Like It's kind of what we're doing. Does that happen in society? Like that's, I don't know if that actually happens. That sounds like a great idea. You don't think people adjust to their environment? No, no, I do, but I don't think that that situation like that is great on paper. Like, pull that kid out that's causing fights, put him in a village, and let him defend the village. That sounds awesome, but does no? I wasn't saying pull him out. I'm just saying the same person, right? Right, that would have grown up in that village and adjusted to that village's energy more appropriately. Gotcha. Then his actions wouldn't potentially be seen as as Negative. disruptive. Right. That makes, right? that makes sense. Yeah, there, there's an appropriate adjustment that should happen kind of in any place. Right. Hopefully. That's like the melting pot theory almost. Totally. Like you go to an area and you eventually, you know, you take your culture and history with it. But if you want to be a part of the melting pot, you got you to gotta kind of fit in with that society that lives there. Right. It's how it works. It's how you make a New York City, you know, back in the day. True. True. <clears throat> you know, I felt bad for Chris when he was talking about his girlfriends <laughs> and how, you know, he – like he's obviously a sweetheart, right? So he cares a lot. He didn't want to be – he doesn't sound like he was ever like a douchebag type, which is uh-huh. impressive because he probably easily could have been. Uh-huh. But he chose not to. And he would worry about what they wh- – whether they messaged him or what it said. I mean – you know, he maybe he did lean maybe too far on the side of the anxiety and putting too much trust into how they can make him feel. But I gotta say, there's something to it. It's it's better than just being a dick to people. Have you ever felt that way? I can say I can say firsthand I felt that way. Like, 
I don't know the extent that he was talking about as far as like if I was in the middle of a basketball game, I want to go check my phone, but you've always been. Oh, we've all been there. Yeah, of course. There's always. We've all been there. Yeah, there's just beautiful people you meet and you want to, and it's good and you want to hear from them and hopefully, you know, they want to do the same. So it's like a good balance and they don't make you feel insecure, but there's people out there that will. They will manipulate you and control that and dial it in just to have you on the hook and it sounds like that's a bit where he got to so it was a little difficult for him yeah that makes you start questioning that makes you start questioning yourself and i think that's that's yeah that's where depression probably comes from and a lot of those kind of feelings come from too like inadequacy and that stuff but well yeah it's so out of your control isn't it you're just like trying to do your best trying to love someone and care for them and then it's you know it's all on your mind you forget who you are and what's important to you and you're just like pandering to them and then it's it's a mess but that's i mean how old was he then he was playing basketball he's 21 yeah, he's i mean that's young right. you're gonna go through those you got to it's part of i mean i mean if nobody's broken your heart before 21 you need to go out there and get your heart broken otherwise you're gonna be in trouble <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I could say that. I, I had one solid girlfriend till till college, but as far as breaking my heart, I don't know. That's a good point. I, I felt. Yeah, I should feel more sometimes. <laughs> well, but there's, but there, uh, I'm just saying that maybe it's not a requirement, but it's a, a useful tool. So when people have had their hearts broken and they think their life is over, it's not over at all. Right. It just is painful. Right. And this would be useful in the future. True. Because maybe you won't, you know, allow someone that you can see is trying to manipulate you or whatever they're doing to do it in the same way. Totally. You'll pick a different type of person. And that's how you learn. Like, it's easy just to go for, as a guy, the prettiest thing that you see that's popular. But then you also realize, wait a second, they're not good people. And that's an important part of it, too. Are they nice? Are they kind? Are they, do they get cruel? Will they try and take whatever they can from you? Like, How much do you think that goes into... That's what happens. How much of that do you think goes into the approach, like into your future relationships? Because I've even tried to do this, like certain aspects of prior relationships are like, I don't want to make that, I don't want to make that happen again. So what can I do to not make that happen? I think that being transparent and communication is obviously the best tool, but it seems like you still run into these issues. Sometimes you have these like relationships that are toxic in the past, and you're like, am I the toxicity, or am I, am I making a conscious change to make the future relationships and the future endeavors in my life learn from those past experiences? I think that should be the... Yeah, I mean, Chris talks about it, right? He made a point to be like... You know, you need to know when you're wrong right. and admit it, which is hard. People don't want to do that, I, right? They, I think that most people without training or, like, that good feedback would rather just be wrong and try and hide the fact that they were wrong and seem right <laughs> than actually reflect and take that responsibility on. Wouldn't you – don't you – I mean, I, I appreciate those people in my life so much that can say I was wrong. I, and not to say that I'm some self-reflective person because I'm wrong all the time. But I think to acknowledge it and be like, all right, I was wrong. What can I do? 
how can I be better? If you could ever say that to me in any situation, like that is the most, besides, I don't even want to hear I'm sorry. I just want to hear, you know what? I fucked up there. How can I, how can I fix that in the future? And how can we move on? Like that's the best. Yeah, that's excellent. I do it with you almost every week with the podcast. Right. I appreciate it. Right? Yeah. It's it's a freebie. You're welcome. <laughs> so get better. Please go. I'm trying to remedy that. Here. No, but th- that's exactly it, right? I mean, it is hard to hear. But if if someone that you are sure cares about you says it to you, you're like there there has to be something here. Right. There has to be. So what should I do? I, I guess I could say, no, it's not worth it. I'm not going to push that hard. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to adjust. Or you say, you know what? I respect this person and they, there's something here that's important. But the older I, and the older I get, sorry to interrupt, there's no satisfaction from the, from the first one you said. You know what I mean? You don't get any satisfaction from being right. Like, I, I don't. Like, I, there's no way I can, like, write home to... Or, or or say like write a blog about how I was right. You know what I mean? Like I just want to be kind. I don't think there's any satisfaction from being right. Like sometimes no, well, I, I want to be right. You're gonna feel guilty, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, of course you're gonna. But you'll feel guilty. Right. You'll take it with with you. And there is an option. There's always options. You can cut those people out of your life. Right. You could, if you wanted, cut all the people out of your life that push you to do better. So you don't have to face it. But then you're just going to surround yourself with losers and not really do well. Yeah. Whereas if you surround yourself with people that really get shit done and give you honest feedback that's useful because you admire them and you're willing to adjust, look, you don't have to fix everything on day one. Right. But it's worth listening to and saying, hey, I'm going to keep them in my life. And if they're keeping me shit about this maybe I should pick up my end. Yeah. Right? At least acknowledge it. Like, at least put the thought in your mind and let it fucking whirl around and, like, give give some... Th- yeah, I tried to do that. I mean, I have had friends in the past, the good friends that I admire a lot, that have called me out on some stuff that was very painful. And it really made me look at myself and go, damn it, you're right. I fucked that up. And those thoughts do creep in. that you're like, I don't want to have to face this. You know, maybe if I just ignore it for a while and not talk to this person, it'd be better. But eventually it catches up with you, man. And there's just no way out of it if you want to do better. And I feel like each one of those moments is an opportunity for growth. Because when you come out of those moments and you have those conversations and you allow yourself to feel, those are the times where you're like, you can come out on the other side and be like, all right, now I can reflect on that. Now I have some perspective on if that happens again, I, I won't make that same decision. I'll, I'll at least try and be a little bit more authentic or transparent in that moment. So that'll give me the opportunity to not look back on this moment now and have the same feeling. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I feel like Chris was doing that right. a lot, even during the pod. Totally. And it's admirable. I agree. Like, I'm a fan of this guy big time. I liked him before because he, he was very funny. But I didn't really feel like I knew kind of him and his thought process. Right. And now that I've seen him, like, heard him talk on this, right. I, I have a ton of respect for that dude. I see why so many comedians think that he is a, a badass. Right. I agree. Funny cat. Let's jump over to Neil Brennan. We went long on this one, but I like Chris a lot, and I wanted to give him, yeah. you know, that time because it was. I'm glad you felt there the was a lot way. there. Totally. Neil Brennan is 
a legend in comedy, no doubt, right? He was on The Chappelle Show and some of the greatest skits of all time. An amazing joke writer, um, a super reflective guy. And if you watch his stand-up, Three Mics, you see that he also has struggled with a lot of things that he wants to talk about, and he brings it into the narrative. I mean, this was one of the more psychedelically reflective uh, podcasts I've ever heard on Rogan, and that's saying something. For sure. I, I, his his stand-up three mics, I think I've showed to... For, it's always like my drunk, if I'm like broing out with somebody or or like have somebody I'm bringing home and I would like kind of want to give them an insight, I'm like, you got to watch this. Like I, I've done that with a, a handful of people. He's one of those guys that is, again, like Chris just so self-reflective and i think it's come through even more of late like he, he had this whole construct of what life was and he i think for the most part he is sober other than psychedelics but he's he's gotten such on board with that which makes his voice that much louder as how important and how vital it is to at least explore the idea of psychedelics as an opportunity to like get introspective and find yourself because he was so cynical of anything you know what i mean like that, that's part of his mm. that's like part of his personality that he kind of like thrives on so the fact that he's kind of metaphorically stepped outside of the box and started trying some new forms of medicine if you want to call it for his own mind like he beats himself up all the time and I, you always have to remind yourself he's the youngest of 10 kids like that's that's crazy you know what i mean like i, I always have to come back well to do that. you know that colbert was like that too <clears throat> i didn't know he was the same idea dude like i think more than wow. 10 wow. maybe 11 hmm. like he was the youngest right and it's not unusual when you're the youngest to struggle for attention right. amongst a lot of people. So you become silly, you silly goose it, right. and then comedy or improv. Or I, I, I don't think that Colbert did any stand-up, but like he did a lot of improv. I mean, it makes sense that it kind of creates those characters, you gotta, I would you, say. you got to find your angle to find your moments to get your parents' attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to make a lot of noise. And that's some of the most gotta make a lot of noise. some of the most resilient, to be honest. I would like to see numbers on firstborns compared to even secondborns as far as success goes, because I think that there's got to be some something in the DNA or something like I feel like the firstborn is always going to get a little bit more coddled than the second, and the second seems to be a little bit more resilient. Maybe this is just my <laughs> I don't know. I have one little brother; he's a champion, so I mean, shout out, but. We we both kind of well. A lot of times, it seems like the oldest, um, the the parents are the strictest with the oldest one, right? right? Because they haven't had kids before, so there's like a lot of control. Make sure they're safe. Don't do this. Don't do that. The second one comes, and you're just like, okay, got a new one, and then you have the third. So there's like that kind of middle child energy where they like don't always know exactly where they fit in. Like the middle child, there's always a little bit different. Right. I mean, I say always. <laughs> Who knows? Right. But then the younger one, by the time they come, the parents are like, ah, fuck it. Feed, You're fine. Feed them. Do whatever you want. <laughs> they seem spoiled. The oldest one's super annoyed at the youngest because right. they're like, I didn't get to do that at his age. And he's like, the parents are like, yeah, because we didn't know if you'd survive. But you seem fine. So now he can just go <laughs> or her. 
can just do whatever. You're still alive, so we're going to let her shut the door with her boyfriend. In the, in yeah, the be all right. <laughs> it's going to be all right. You'll figure Don't it, worry you'll about figure it. it out. But think about it. You do that in reverse. Right. It's like your kid might not survive. You start with the the first one, and you're like, just do whatever you want. <laughs> and I the bungee <laughs> jumping at age six, you're like, ah, oh, shit. My dad gave me a long leash, I will say. But that's, that's probably what made me me. But my brother definitely, throughout high school, got a little bit longer leash. He got to shut the door with the girls in the room. So <sighs> at least there was no babies. Bless him. Were your parents religious? Uh, no. I mean, we just had a single mom, and my mom was like, I remember, I always remember, my, don't put yourself in compromising situations. That's what I would always hear. <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh. save that for another pod. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> it sounds more emotional. We'll get back to it. Let's talk about the type of therapy that he did, though. So, he went, I heard about his ketamine therapy way back in the day, and it's funny that he said that it didn't really work because I was under the impression right. that that really worked for him. I think we all were. I think he set the set the record straight on this one. He's like, I think I kind of led people to believe that that would like worked for me, but that did not work for me. But but it worked for Theo, right? <laughs> didn't I think? Didn't Theo Vaughn get some great responses from Ketamin? Because he was trying to get sober. Is that correct? What was or was that he dealing with some? I don't know exactly if that was his motivation for the ketamine. I mean, I know that he's done lots of different rehabs in every type of way, right. and AA and, you know, sex therapy and, you know, hillbilly therapy or whatever else <laughs> Theo Vaughn gets up to. But <laughs> I don't know if that was his motivation for going in there. I think he was dealing with some depression right. and wanted to see if it worked. Um, it, you know... What's interesting to me is, like, of all the, like, really big-time drugs that I don't know if it's FDA-approved, but, like, you can go to a doctor and have this done in New York City. Why did they choose ketamine? That's a good question. You would assume, uh, other than, like, Ibogaine, which is actually getting really good, you know, um, credible anecdotal stories of, of, like, recovery from addiction all the rest of it like it sounds really effective i haven't heard bad stories about that yet for some reason they went with ketamine I'm like is, is that, it like, that i don't know I, how many stories i've heard about ketamine that say it's like the big cure it's some kind of like tranquilizer too isn't it like horse tranquilizer or something at its essence i i, I believe something to, to that notion i do yeah i, I think that i think that it's used for <clears throat> horses Often, I'm probably, I mean, I would imagine that they use it for a bunch of different types of animals. I, I never want to sell depression short because I know that you and I have had conversations and we, we get into our moments and everybody gets into their moments. But I do like it that Joe always comes back. He's like, do you work out? And he was like, yeah. He was like, do you do cardio? He's like, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've challenged you on a handful of situations to do a lot of extraneous, like cardiovascular situations. And I, I, and I, Still, uh, stress is one of those things that you can't really monetize or conceptualize from a different perspective because nobody knows exactly what somebody else is going through other than the words they use. Wait, you can't monetize? Uh, well, You're just throwing fancy words out? Yeah, I figured I'd throw monetize out. 
But okay, nice. <laughs> well, yeah, good. All I want to do is I want to see. You can't quantify quanti- it, right? Quanti- Maybe. Quantify. I'll take that. But I want to put you on that stair climber for 11 minutes and say do 100 floors, and then immediately after that say I'm depressed. I just don't know if that your mind doesn't have the ability to like compartmentalize. I don't think because your mind's like I gotta get through this before I smash my face on the front of this thing. It doesn't have the time to be like oh sorrow and this and that. It's like it only has a finite amount of space. So I think that if you're doing extraneous cardio and extraneous things, it doesn't allow you the opportunity to come out of that. And I think that if you have those opportunities and you do that stuff that's super hard, when you come out on the other side, you're like, oh, yeah, didn't have, don't have, don't have. Do you think that saying that, do you think that if if it should be like a mandatory thing, and I say mandatory, like not obviously you won't go to jail for it. But let's say that you're suffering from depression, right? right? So you, but also you don't have a lot of energy. Right. Your motivation is low. Like that's the hardest time to be able to push yourself really hard. But saying that, if you got Goggins showed up that day and was like, okay, I don't care how you feel. Right. You're going to feel shitty either way because you've been depressed. Right. But we're going for a run. And then we're doing burpees. And it's going to be exhausting. And, yeah, maybe you get back and you're like, this sucked. (laughs) This was the worst day I've had in a long time. And it's like, yeah, but how were most of your days? Well, they're pretty bad. I don't. And then you just keep doing it over and over again. I wonder if that was – if it, like – I wonder what the percent – like, could you do that to somebody? I don't want – Make them push like that over and over again for weeks and weeks – and then they still are like, yeah, I'm fucking super depressed. It, this hasn't helped. Do it for five days. I don't need weeks weeks and weeks. When it, when you're pushing yourself to the limits, it doesn't take much to be like, oh, that's the limit. Like I just allowed myself to sit in, in, in my thoughts and think of certain things. Like that's not <laughs> – You don't. Your, your mind doesn't have that much space and doesn't have that much – Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I – Tr- did, did Neil talk about working out? Like, I know he said maybe he likes. Jogs. Did he say? He said he jogs. That's what Joe. And I, I know Joe didn't really beat him up over it, but he was like, I think Joe wants to say that to everybody. Like, if 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 you're feeling depressed, like go do something really, really, really hard in the sun, and then come home and still say I'm depressed. I will say that Neil said he goes. After doing certain therapies and whatnot, he would be like, I could see why people wanted to dance. I necessarily didn't want to dance, but I could see why they wanted to. Oh, uh, he was talking about the ayahuasca, right. right? So to his credit, I mean, he was like, I'm feeling full depression. So, I mean, I haven't felt that, but even when you're in your lowest of low, I think it just like kind of, it's like a spiral effect. It, if you say that I'm in the lowest, so I need to sit here and not do this, that's like kind of just like snowball effect, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he did the ayahuasca a bunch of times, and he said that he hasn't needed to take antidepressants since. That's an important discussion. Does it work every time? Who knows? Probably not. But if it worked for him, then... And it's not necessarily bad for you, then why not? Why not? Why not? If you're struggling or you're in just this like constant cycle of taking antidepressants and other drugs, which you know, there's a place for them too. Some people get so down and so dark that 
it's not the worst right. thing to get on just to get kind of level. Right. But if you want to get away from it and and kind of figure it out, and obviously Neil wasn't jumping into kettlebell workouts, mm -hmm. so it's nice to know there's an option because there's not just one way out of these things, right? There's a lot potentially. Yeah. But it seems like in general, it it's about pushing yourself. So to think that an ayahuasca trip is not as intense as doing a really fucking hard workout, I mean, it's probably really intense too. I'll take but there's no easy way, right? It's like e either or you're pushing yourself. Even if you just say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to reduce some stress and I'm going to do sauna four times a week for like 40 minutes and nothing else. I'm not going to do ayahuasca. I'm not going to work out. I'm going to do nothing. Well, good luck staying in that sauna that's for 20 minutes. That's exactly what went through my it's head. It's hard. Yeah. You have to overcome your mind. And if you can overcome your mind in that scenario, you can overcome your mind in any. Because you're like, this is like... And it takes practice with everyone. You and I were just talking about it before right. the pod. It it took me over a year to build up to 20 minutes. And take it take it as you want, folks. If you can do it way quicker, good for you. I'm happy for you. It just took me that long. It was hard. I used to freak out after about 15 minutes. But now I go in there and it, there's, I don't care. I set that alarm and I go. And if it's the sauna in my apartment complex can get over 200 degrees, sometimes that 20 minutes is really brutal. But if I go to a gym that's like between 160 and 180, 20 minutes now is nothing. Easy. I just go in. I can do whatever. It doesn't matter. I remember it. But it took a long time. It took a long time to get there. I think it's just your mind, mindset. I don't know. There's a whole lot of other people, but I always walk into those community saunas, and I'm like, I'm not leaving until every single one of you guys leaves first, no matter what. That's not a bad way of doing it. <laughs> like that's what goes through my well, mind. Well, also because you can pretty much count on everyone being in there for about five minutes, Mate, so that's not bad either. Either way. But – I love that thought. But process. it's a good, yeah, it's a good kind of setup. They talked about 5-MeO DMT, and uh, Neil's description of it was fascinating. It was the, the same as what my experience would be. But he he hit on a few points I hadn't heard um, repeated, and they were my experience. One was getting, like, days after the experience – he, like, got hit again by that feeling and, like, started tripping, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, that drug still shouldn't be floating around your system. I mean, DMT breaks down very quickly in the human body, so it's almost like, you know, some sort of echo in your mind of the experience, and it does it again. But one night after doing 5-MeO, it was, like, maybe three or four days later, I woke up from a dream 100% tripping on 5-MeO again but it was the feeling I got when I came out of the experience so it was just like some fractals like a bit wavy like a bit unusual but he said something that I really haven't talked to anybody about and he was like I was scared of the dark for like 5 days dude after that like echo experience of the 5-MeO I straight up, for real, for like three days, had to sleep with the light on. I was reminded what it felt like to be like a five-year-old again. 
Remember, like, every kid was scared of the dark when they were young, right? And we forget this. We all were. No kids were not scared of the dark for a certain amount of time in their lives. And it was pretty young. It was young enough to really not remember. But it almost made me think, like, feel that again. And I didn't realize. It was just so unnerving. And the 5-MeO is such a peculiar, super hallucinogenic drug that it takes you to all different places in your mind. So I'm not surprised that that happened, but it, I, I, I'm glad that he did because I'd never heard anybody talk about that before, it, and I thought I was being a huge pussy. Is that le- to be is honest. that legal or is that like underground stuff? I'm not. For, I'm not too familiar. Oh, it's a hundred percent illegal. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, dude, because it's super powerful. <laughs> like, of course, it's illegal, dude. And they've made so obviously when I say I did it, I really didn't. Does that make you think about just like the thin veneer, like I? I like there's like a thin little layer and all it takes is one puff of something or one one thing of something and you're like oh, I'm I'm in a different world. Well, when you've done it, yeah, you think that, <laughs> but you don't realize. I mean, we feel like we're here and we're doing this thing and th- and this is all there is that's in right, right in front of us. Right. That's not really true when you've done those types right. of drugs. And they gr- it's like, yeah, your your consciousness exists inside this fleshy body right now but you could smoke a thing and go somewhere else real fast <laughs> like blast off when he was saying that too it's like and, yeah and i mean that we we've been talking a lot about mushrooms like mushrooms grow from the ground so like god gave you the mushrooms not sound like a hippie but it's like these are like not super processed things these are literally just growing from the ground i remember being in hawaii and eating them and i was like wow this like but what does what does that mean though there's also mushrooms that'll kill you guy you can eat that kill you immediately all true so i don't know who cares there's certain things you can eat there's certain things you can't and there's certain chemicals you can synthesize and make that also get you high i don't really buy that argument too much right mm. i guess you can demonize coke crack smack meth and say well they're man-made so it everything man-made is bad and also pharmaceuticals are but like i don't know if mdma is it's, an, it's definitely not as bad for you as eating a poisonous mushroom no i'm i'm on board with mdma it's a it's a natural i don't know if it's natural is that a synthesized compound too i don't know you you would know more than i yeah it doesn't yeah it doesn't grow like it doesn't grow in the ground fair enough you know oh all i'm saying is there might be like a synthetic version of psilocybin right that you could extract that actually might be a different experience that you know maybe some of the look a lot of the uncomfortable feeling during mushrooms is is often seen as very beneficial like you got to feel it, you got to work through it, you got to do this and that. But maybe some of it is just because there's other compounds in there that you know grow from the earth that are not necessarily designed to work through your system, and and maybe they kind of interfere with the message that's coming through. That's a that's a fair assessment. Well, do you think so? I mean, really, I mean, that's the opposite of what you just said. Well, I think it's an opposite. I mean, let's get into it. I think it's an option. I don't know. 
I mean, I think that that's a possibility for sure. I think you're going to try and if you're making a drug, you're going to want to try and amplify all the parts that are quote unquote, like the good parts of it, I guess. I don't know. I'm probably simplifying that, but Mm -hmm. I mean, the two drugs that I do, weed and mushrooms are both grow from the ground. So I'm just going to hang on to that narrative and you can suck a bag of eggs. I like it. All right. Well, that's your opinion. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just throwing something different out there, and I'm like, okay, fair enough. I see what you're saying, but I think, fair but enough. I think there is, and even there's some benefit to alcohol too. I mean, as long everything in moderation, I think is maybe not crack, smoke, smack. Even though Carl Hart says you can do, yeah, I mean, you can do meth and still enjoy it. Who knows? I, there's certain things that I would like. Dude, people do. <laughs> Adderall right. all the time. I've done it a it's bunch. Basically of time. meth. I've done it a bunch of times. Yeah, it's basically meth. You're right. just not smoking it. You just it's oral meth, right. and they want to pretend that like you talk to somebody that takes an Adderall prescription, and you're just like, hey, uh, would you ever do meth? And they're like, no way, no. dude. That's fucking. That's for losers. That's Gross. outrageous. You're like, yeah. well, <laughs> I mean, okay, right. but like maybe you do it already a little bit. Meanwhile, it's like chopping up an Adderall. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, snorting it. Like, no, I'd never be a loser like that. This is so I can focus. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. It's just where you draw the line. Let's end on the a bit of the Bob Lazar stuff because I love bringing him up. Um, and Neil did for a second. And then they get into, like, all the workings of it. But when, like... Uh, oh, actually, maybe this was on the left. Let's jump over the left. Yeah, that was, that was I'm the all over the place. But, the, but didn't... Didn't uh, Rogan stop the podcast to tell Lex something about Bob Lazar? And look, man, I I really respect the fact that Rogan promised Bob that he would keep it a secret. And it's good. Maybe there's a good reason for it. I'm sure there is. But fuck, as a nosy neighbor, don't you want to know what that is? It's like that story is hard enough to tell, and we still can't tell it. Where does your mi- damn? Where does your mind go whenever that? Whenever he's going to tell that little tidbit? What's what? What's what's your immediate thought? Dude, I feel like it's good. I feel like it's so clearly true that it had to be kept a secret, but it also also is like horrifically damaging. Right. And they, look, Bob's been real open and put himself way out there to tell his story. So if it's something that he doesn't think anyone can know, but he trusts Rogan with it, I'm like, it's got to be fucked up. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think what it could be. Is it just like they came, like the little Martian came and hung up, stand, stood right next to him and said, hey. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's probably something more serious, like the FBI took him in, uh... they questioned him, and they actually threatened his life. And they said, if you say anything about X, Y, and Z and how we deleted all your shit, you know, you're going to jail for 20 years. And if you don't want to, sign this piece of paper. And this is, I mean, something like, who knows what the lens could be. And it could be anything. I'm just guessing. But I was thinking to myself, like, what would cause me to do that? And it's like, if you were forced to sign something that in the end just said, no matter what, you signed it, and if you say it, you're guilty and you're going to jail, I mean, it's about it's always about taking away freedom. 
I'm and that threat. I'm with you on that, but how much context does a signature hold at this point in time? Dude, it's the government, bro. If you sign it, you said it. Good luck. Yeah. Seems like people sign things all the time. Don't sign anything, folks. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how much validity goes into, oh, you, you wrote something in ink. Well, the, dude, it's not about you and what you think. It's law. Well, yeah. The law believes that. Right. They will say, yeah, that's a confession. Or that's a, you know, you're admitting the truth. Right. Like, you wouldn't put your name on it if you didn't believe it. And then you broke that. Right. So now you're fucked. Well, if he was like... I mean, that's what contracts are. What, All contracts. How many contracts Dude, are you, signed with a... You and I could have a contract for this podcast where I say to you, everything's fine. We just keep doing it. But if you say the word but once on a podcast, then no you've broken the terms of this. And it, as ridiculous as that sounds, right. that would be enough. In a court, I'd be like, look, I have to sue Garrett. He signed this. He said but, all buts, too many times. We got to take him out. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird thing to not interpret. And that's what I think. I think we're going to get to that point where you can start interpreting things for face value. And there doesn't have to be a dumb across the board law for anything. It's going to be, we got to a point now we're enlightened enough to like, take everything and all the details in is that utopia yeah but also hold on how do you hold anybody accountable to a contract <clears throat> if they can't sign something right. what are you saying we're going to get to a future where nobody's responsible for anything I mean yeah contracts and like signing confessions and all the rest of it they're inherently problematic right. because you can get in over your head you can understand it and you're fucked but also if you're trying to like build a building or start a company, and you need some other people to like show up and do that thing. You got to have these, true. right? True. So it's like what this says on this paper. Everyone agrees to the thing that it right. says, and that's why you sign it. So you think that's what? Or there's legal reparations. So that's what you think. I mean, it's good and bad. So that's where Bob's at in his situation, where he's like, "All right, well, they told me if I said any of this shit, I'm gonna be locked up." So, dude, I, dude, I have no idea. I, I just gave the example. No, no, I'm saying that, that. that makes sense because that's what I would think. Right. Let's say, let's throw another example out there. It could be that who fucking knows? He was actually visited by aliens, and they were like, "If you tell this next bit to the general population, the <laughs> whole world goes insane." So he's like, "All right, I'm just gonna tell Joe." It, it could be a lot of different and things. Not, maybe Joe's just like... What do you think it is, Gary? I, Come up no, with a I mean, story I, like I'm that. I'm thinking about that moment, and if you're a whistleblower, like, look at what Snowden's gone through, look what Assange has gone through, and, and not that you have to be one of these, like, profound individuals, because he's like, I just don't want to trade my life for this piece of this little nugget of information, but if that's the case, man, if there's a nugget of information that Joe's just hanging on to or that he's hanging on to that would I don't know if it benefit the bigger the, <laughs> if one person has to suffer it's easy for me to say but it's like you would like to think that people are virtuous in that moment like if, if I have to suffer for the best I, I who knows I, I don't know I get it right it's it's very heroic you know? but let's look at Julian Assange and Snowden 
Julian Assange right now, I think, is in the equatorial fucking um, uh, shit. What are those places called? The um, hostel? Uh, no, not a hostel. It's like the government thing, but it's em- kind of em- like embassy. That. Embassy. He's in the embassy in London. Can't leave. Right? Who knows what that's like. Then you've got Snowden stuck in Russia. I mean, think of the sacrifice that we're asking these people. And you have to think also, all right, is this little bit of information that that, um, Bob Lazar is leaving out, is it that critical to the whole dialogue? Because if it's not, and it's the one thing that makes him have to flee the country, it's like, no, I don't want this guy to have to do that. That's, Forget about that it. That said, keep it quiet. Have you ever had? Has Joe ever edited anything on the show ever? I think that's the first time I've ever seen him edit anything. <clears throat> well, he stops to take a piss, right? But often. you know what I mean, though. As far as an info, but cut things f- out from an information no, standpoint. I don't, think, I don't so. think that's ever happened. He was just having a moment with, Lex. but he, pr- but he probably promised Bob. This isn't like a choice where he would love to tell us. I mean, he told Lex, and he knows. So how big of a secret is it? It's like enough of a secret. But it might not be helpful to, like, throw out to everyone in the world, especially if it's not anything close to the story we're telling. And it it actually sounds crazy. What happens if... If it sounds crazy, it's going to make... Bob look mm. nuts and people like to discredit him anyway so maybe it's not about that it's about like making him not look crazy even if it is something that these guys believe to be that's true a, right? that's a fair assumption that's a good way to look at it I agree with that I mean Joe talked to him right so Joe probably has a way different feeling right. than we do as listeners so therefore if he's like listen I trust him a lot. I really do. I've talked to him privately. I've gone to dinner with him. I do trust him. Also, he's told me some shit that's so insane that if I said that to 12 million people worldwide, they would be like, well, Bob Lazar is clearly out of his mind. So it might be a carefully edited bit of something. Don't get me wrong. I don't like it. Because I want to hear it all, but I'm just being a nosy bitch. I don't want to relate it back to what Neil said back in, to that one, but he was like, you could tell me anything at this point, and I would at least table it. Like, I'd spitball it and at least <laughs> alternate universes, different feelings being possessed, all these different things. Like, at least I'd think about it. Like, the idea that it seems like so naive and just so, like, callous to be like, nope, couldn't happen. So it's like anything is a possibility now, especially. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you do high level psychedelics and yeah, at least for a while after doing them, you're like, yeah, anything's possible. (laughs) Time, space, (laughs) you know, fucking everything. Whatever. (laughs) Aliens. I'm in. Lizard people. Probably. I don't think that that's a bad. I mean, you don't, you don't know which way is up, but but that's mostly because you're confused. For a while, I don't know. Yeah, but life life will show you different perspectives from a variety of ways, especially like fear and just catastrophic trauma. Like it, it definitely impacts your perspective on how you see things and how far you'll draw that line in the sand of like what's real, what's not, and what you allow your mind to do. Because I think your mind kind of has a way of rebounding to a lot of those situations and it, it, it like protects itself in certain ways too like with certain thoughts and certain I don't know 
I think it's you're, give me an example of what you're saying I just feel like it'd be an interesting it's from a trauma standpoint I think that your 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 mind and your your the way you deal with different stuff especially for me like I this I've said it to you it's like given the circumstances that I've gone through I always have in the back of my mind like do your worst I always think that do your worst do your worst do your worst and I'll figure out a way to be like resilient to it. I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to approach things, but like I, I have a tendency of looking at life from that perspective. Like, what else can you do? You know. Well, it's not really an example. I know. Well, <laughs> it sounds more like a self-help. But it's pretty vague. <laughs> well, I mean, what's it, so? What you were just saying? What's it like? An active life example of. How like life giving you experiences, you know. Obviously, everyone goes through stress. Right. Everyone goes through anxiety. Everyone goes through good moments, right. and and it's it almost seems like what you do with that experience is the most important right. thing, not uh, the fact you went through. I don't want to say it from a vague standpoint. And the only thing I can say is from a language standpoint. I think that if you approach life, that everything is happening for a reason and it's not, and this is going to sound like a self help and it's, it's not happening to you. It's happening for you. That might be a different, I think it's all about the approach that does. Fair enough. <laughs> We're going to start calling you self help or care. <laughs> Fair enough. This is self help I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I can. Uh, no real world examples, I don't, I don't, but just woo woo <laughs> philosophy that I read somewhere. You just got to do it, bro. It's like Nike. Just do it. Well, I'm like, did you just watch a Nike commercial? I mean, yeah, I did. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't. I don't know if I could write down on a piece of paper. This is how to do it. I think that the language. Is- Dude, think of your whole life. You've had millions of examples of very difficult shit that you got over. Right. And I just said, could you give me an example that relates? Of how you of it, it probably would not be a positive one because I think that a lot of that stuff come, like would lean towards depression. Like and, and, and like if you're focusing on those situations to make you stronger, a lot of the time they take you down a hole. But I feel like I'm you. You make it sound like self help, but I think that if you look at those situations and you try and be resilient because of them. As opposed to like making them an excuse for why you can go down a certain road. Yeah, I mean, true, but it also sounds like a cop out because you won't give any examples. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll. That's the. All right, we we swing back around. All right, swing circle, back around. Cir- but yeah, circle back I mean, around, Jen Saki. <laughs> Elon buying Twitter. We've talked about it before. We have to go over shit multiple times. That's the world we live in. Like, this is Rogan Talk to. Right. Like, they're going about it. How interesting. I wanted to hear Lex's um, opinion on this. I mean, number one, it's a bull-ass move, right? I mean, but then this whole bots thing, I don't know the ins and outs of this, but I know Elon is like, hey, wait a second. There's a shitload of bots here. And then all of a sudden, all Rogan knows is his numbers go up like a million, you know? Right. Maybe that algorithm did change. I didn't think what Rogan said about that was unreasonable. I didn't think... I mean, he's just... He doesn't know the algorithms. He's just guessing. Right. But, you know, also remember, he's been in the being famous and making yourself famous world for a long time. And to be fair, Rogan has done a very good job of this, right? 
He had Red Band following him around with a camera before people were doing shit like that. He was like, let's get this on film so people can get to know who I am. And then he jumps into podcasts early. Like, and I don't know if, like, he was having fun with it all, but he was also playing around, like, seeing what could do it, right? What could get those numbers up? What could get faces on him? Because he knew then potentially he had, you know, hopefully he had a message that was important. Right. When those numbers jump, you got to wonder what that means. And then also, how many fucking bots are on this thing? And also, once again, I'm stupid. What's a bot? It's just a computer program that pretends to post things. Imagine if like 40% of Twitter was just robots talking to each other. Not even a... What the fuck? I mean, why would that make... Why would that be crazy compared to what Twitter actually is? You know? Like, that doesn't seem outside of the realm at all. No. I mean, I'm inclined to believe it. I just want to know what it is, right? So what do we do when we get rid of those? You know, and maybe all these like angry trolls on Twitter that make it like this toxic place. And I don't have a lot of experience or almost any with Twitter, but I've heard people talk about how gross it is. Imagine if most of that is robots winding up these nerds that then like finding the angry people, making them twice as angry. And then spurring that on, and it becomes, like, most of the dialogue. How hard would that be? That seems, like, so easy. <laughs> it seems very <laughs> it reasonable, seems right? extremely easy. It seems like you could do it on a night. Like, you could do it in an hour. Especially when you're... Well, what would that... What does that mean, though? What does that mean to Twitter if, if Elon is able to clean that up? Hopefully. Like, if he gets rid of that, they figure out the bots, they get rid of them, and then... I mean, is Twitter going to be, like, a fun place to be? Like, I love the idea of Elon buying it. I'm not super pumped to get on there. And I no disrespect to him, but it's still Twitter. I've never been that inspired to get on there. I've tried. I don't, I don't know how it's going to become, like, a more positive place that I want to add to my life. I'm still unsure of that story. Hopefully the goal is to have a, a place of honest discourse. I would hope. I would hope that's the approach. Like, if there's not the bots involved, I don't know. Every, but what does that mean? Yeah. What does honest discourse? Yeah, you're, you're mean? right. When I'm thinking about saying that, it's still people are going to be skewed. To s- <clears throat> I don't know. It's interesting. People are always going to go to people that agree with them too. So you're going to find what you're looking for. I don't know. That's true. You know. That's true. Let's end with uh, uh, Lex's drunk story. <laughs> now we all saw the post. On Rogan's Instagram, it's one of the best ones he ever made, I think. Just showing Lex, like, half passed out. Love it. Getting more of the backstory of this was really fun. Goggins. But that's what I like about Lex is, you know, obviously, he's he's a nerd, right? Mm-hmm. But but a, getting a, becoming a great interviewer, no doubt talking to all sorts of people that you you don't even get on Rogan, like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. I mean, that's something. No, I'm not saying that Rogan couldn't get him, but it hasn't happened. Right. Fascinating. He breaks things down in phenomenal ways, but he also can get into it and party with these guys and, and, and like, live with it. You know, he's not trying to pretend to be something else, right? Because there's probably a lot of pressure in, like, the scientific AI 
MIT world of PhDs where it's like, well, don't act like a fool because nobody will respect you. Right. And Lex is like, hey, I'm just I'm just doing this journey. To his, like, I'm out. I'm having fun. I like it that he's always seeking the truth to his benefit. He was even saying, he's like, I'd interview, He, I think he interviewed Putin, but he's also saying, he, he's like, I'd interview Hitler during that. He's like, I just want to get perspective of why, what makes people do certain things. The thing is, you're always, like, seeking the truth, and you're always seeking that. And you go from that spot, you can't really lose, and I think he's got that. Well, hold on. I, one thing I would say uh, to Lex is, like, after hearing him on this pod, maybe, look, I know Ukraine-Russia thing for him hits home hard, and it's important to feel those things, right? It is. But... He's not going to be as useful to himself and us when he's speaking his pods and doing his work if he's constantly depressed in the sense of like that overwhelming stress of of feeling like such an important part of this movement. He can do good out there potentially, right? Maybe he's in a position where he can kind of bring people together and bring some sense to this. But it it doesn't have to be at the cost of his psyche and how he feels. And he and he seemed pretty bummed out. This was the most depressed Lex I've ever heard. True. And no, I'm not disrespecting him at all. And I'm not saying he did anything wrong. I'm sure I wouldn't be able to handle it at all. That said. You know, he's getting very famous very quick. And he's in a, a unique situation to where because he speaks these other languages and knows people out there, he kind of is a bit of a conduit right. to, to the news that we get here. I just I just wish that it didn't you know it wasn't bumming him out so much. I, th- I agree i think he embraces the fact that joe has always been a, a dude that he could turn to like i don't know if he has the whole lot of those guys in his life so i think that it's crazy that joe is that mentor but that's kind of the case not a bad mentor no, sir I'm telling you that much no, sir not the worst guy you could have in your corner we got, like helping you we out got, i mean we got number love for lex yeah, great guy. Good poem at the end, too. For sure. For sure. Well, all right, guys. We went over a bit longer today, but, you know, God bless us. We just rant, and that's how it goes. Thank you always for tuning in and um, supporting us. Um, have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Be the best you can be today. Peace. <laughs>